Hello, hello. Come on in, people. Hello. Get in the room, get in the room. Do say hello as you're coming in. And I'll just give it a few minutes. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Reno, how are you doing? Do let me know where you're watching from. Um, it is such a pleasure to be back. It's been a while. It's been a while. And today, you are in for a fucking ride. I can tell you that much. <laughs> okay. Come in. Amala, hello, my darling. How are you doing? Do say hello. Do say hello. I'm going to, as always, give it a couple of minutes. And then I'm going to be just giving you an idea of what it is that we're talking about today. As you can see by the pinned comment and the title, it's a very important conversation. Okay. It's an urgent call. I repeat, an urgent fucking call for independent thinking and independent thinkers. Okay. Um, and I'm not going to be doing this alone. I'm going to be doing this and having this conversation with a wonderful, wonderful, unfiltered, raw, very honest human being um, called Kyle Creek. You might know him as the captain. He'll be joining me in just a moment. Do say hi. Let me get my tea ready before we begin. <laughs> Someone said, you look like my friend Ahmad. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, come into the room. Come into the room. Um, what I'm going to do, if you're just joining right now, this is a conversation that's going to last about an hour, maybe an hour and a half, depending on how, how it's going. It might be a little bit longer. So I do want you to get settled if that is possible, but I will be saving the conversation. And the conversation will also be on my podcast. Um, Kyle will be joining in just a few minutes. He's already in the room, but I do just want to introduce this conversation properly before he comes in. Um, and I was saying to him before we started that I want to give him the introduction that he deserves, okay? Because he deserves a pretty fucking great introduction. Um, <laughs> hello, hello, people. Okay, perfect. So the reason why I think this conversation is going to be very, very fucking important. Hello, Kyle. Um, the reason why I think this conversation is going to be very important is because it's, it's easy to find people that, you know, fit in very well with the status quo. It's very easy to find people who will echo all of the sentiments that have been agreed upon by society. It is very fucking easy to find people who are willing, very much willing to toe the line and to play very safe um, for many different reasons. And now more than ever, it's becoming increasingly difficult 
to find people who are willing to tell the fucking truth. And as I said that, someone just just wrote, people need to tell the fucking truth. <laughs> it, is, it is becoming increasingly difficult to find people that are willing to tell the truth openly, okay? And there are many reasons, many reasons as to why that is, and we will be talking about that today. So whenever I personally come across anyone who is daring, anyone who is audacious, anyone who is bold and willing to express themselves in an honest way, without being aggressive as a default, without being self-righteous, without losing compassion and empathy. I always, always, always find myself being drawn to that person and I want to know more. Um, hello, Rich, you gorgeous, gorgeous human being. Um, I'm always drawn to that person even more. And especially if they are someone that is willing to go against the grain, I will do whatever I can to have a conversation with them, to exchange ideas with them, even if we don't agree on everything. And for me, Kyle really is that person. His work was introduced to me maybe earlier on in the year. Um, people in my audience just started asking me, Africa, have you heard about this person? Africa, have you heard about this person? Africa, you need to have a fucking conversation with this man. Um, and I was like, okay, okay, let me see, let me see what his message is. And it turns out that we resonate on so many things. And it's not about having agreement as the default. It's just about finding someone who is willing to ask the hard questions, someone who's willing to have an open conversation. And that's really what I hope today is going to be about. All right. So if you are someone that is sensitive if you are someone that likes to have your beliefs coddled and cradled, um, if you are someone that wants the rest of the world to reflect your worldview and your belief system, I, uh, I, <laughs> what are you doing here? I'm joking, stay, stay. If you are that person, you definitely want to stay, okay? And I do want you to remember, and I always like to put these disclaimers out because there are a lot of people that um, have never been part of my lives before. Maybe you've recently joined. Um, maybe you've recently joined my my community. But I do want to let you know that everything that I put forward is not supposed to be taken hook, line, and sinker. Okay, my job and my duty is to encourage you to think for yourself. If something doesn't fucking work or resonate or it doesn't make sense, you can discard it. All right. Naturally, you are going to filter everything you receive. Everything you receive, receive is going to be filtered through your belief system, your value system, your moral compass, your own biases, your own judgments. You get to do that. You get to do that. All right. It doesn't make me the enemy just because you disagree and you don't have to put me on a pedestal if you do agree. All right. Trust yourself that you can pass through all of this and take what you need and leave what you don't, all right? Um, and I, I would believe that Kyle would put the same thing forward as well. So let's get him into the room and he will also introduce himself. But Kyle Creek, wonderful name, um, who's known under his alias, which most of you might know him by, which is the captain. So he's an author, a brilliant, brilliant author. And I'm actually going to be going through 
some parts of his book speech therapy which you do need to fucking read okay you know that my recommendations are good um he has a book called speech therapy which i will be going through a little bit through this conversation and you'll see why it's important for me to do that but he's an author he's a creative he's a speaker and he's someone that i just okay i'll i'll, I'll let you see him for yourself um, let me just get him into the room. And then also I do want to the opportunity for us to, for you to ask any questions, any questions that you have, you can put them forward to us as well. Where is he? All right. Hello. Hello, Kyle. That was quite the intro. I don't know if I can live up to that. <laughs> I hope the pressure is not too much. <laughs> uh, the pressure is much appreciated, but in, in all seriousness, um, that intro was fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. Huge admirer of your work as well, as we talked, you know, briefly today. Um, so I'm really excited to connect with a like mind. Like I said, your work and what you were saying when I, when I, Similarly, people were sending me your stuff. I think it was my girlfriend that actually first introduced me to your work, was sending it to me saying, you need to read what this woman's saying. Because at the time, you know, maybe six months ago, I was even, as a writer, finding myself questioning some of my work and <clears throat> afraid of how it'd be perceived. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, a lot, of, a lot of my stuff is not meant to be hook, line, and sinker as well. A lot of it's meant to kind of start a conversation or get the wheels the wheels moving and if you take it verbatim every time i say something you're probably gonna gonna find yourself in a weird place in life so i appreciate what you were saying and i'm i'm equally as excited to have this conversation today oh me too me too and you know what <laughs> something that i heard you say when i was listening to a recent conversation that you had with aubrey marcus and i i I think this is an important place to start actually because the moment that you said it I was like fuck yes when you were talking about how much you detest it when people refer to your work as a content creator I was just <laughs> like oh my goodness <laughs> oh my goodness and I wanted you to tell me a little bit about that actually because even though it might seem as if it's not directly related to everything we're going to talk about I actually think that it is in so many ways, but I wanted to know why for you personally, you don't resonate with that term content creator. Why, why is that? I would, oh, sorry, your video kind of cut out there for a second, but I think I caught the tail end of your question. Um, yes. I despise my work being called content because content is made with a very specific purpose. And that purpose is, to become viral, to be liked, to be shared. Um, the word content just infers that you're creating to feed a machine. And I think a lot of creators have fallen into that trap, particularly with the algorithm changes on social media, where it's very easiest to see someone who's just trying to feed the algorithm. They're trying to feed the kind of stuff they know is going to get them promoted. And if you're doing that as a creator, whether you're a writer or a musician or a painter, anytime you create from a place of trying to get the attention of other people, as opposed to trying to convey your perception of something, 
you just water yourself down and it becomes so obvious to those that can see it. Um, and a lot of times you might think you're smarter than them. You think you're kind of beating the algorithm or you're creating a way that people can't see that. But when you do that long enough, you eventually lose sight of yourself and you stop creating from a place of enjoyment and you create strictly to be popular. And one of the reasons I despise that so much is because I spent a large portion of my career working in advertising. I was a copywriter for an advertising agency and a creative director for over 10 years. And what I did in that job was very much content. A client comes to you, they hire you with a specific goal of getting attention, selling product, getting reelected. And I had this whole captain thing. I started on the side as a way to create more of what I wanted, write what I wanted to say without the concern of public opinion or clients. And to have that area that I initially created as essentially a creative escape from my work, to have that start being called content just makes me feel fucking dirty. Mm. And I wish more creatives would give themselves the grace, but also give themselves the time to create good work. Yes. Because I used to do this early on too, where I felt the need to tweet or post every day. And I realized my best work comes from allowing me to sit and take my time. And when else in history has a writer ever had to write as much as writers do now? I mean, you have guys like Mark, guys like Mark Twain would write a novel and they would disappear for six months to a year. Then they'd come back with another novel. They weren't tweeting every day. They weren't writing every day. They were taking their time to create really good works of art. And I would love to see more creatives start respecting what they do as a work of art again. Okay, you're back, you're back. Did I lose you for a second? You did, but the last thing um, I heard you were saying, just something along the lines of, if only people would take that same approach again, of really just taking their time um, and sort of honoring their craft without trying to feed the algorithm, which is something that I see also all the time. So I think when I was listening to you in that interview, that resonated with me immediately because it's something that I've been saying out loud and to myself for the past five years. I refuse to rush what I do because I find that because of the nature of what I speak about, if I was to force myself to constantly write every single day and to post something every single day, it means I am, I am going to find myself performing at some point in time. Right. And I think something that I do notice with people, especially people that are position themselves as, let's see, especially with people that sort of position themselves as cultural commenters, etc. I find that eventually they almost end up becoming a caricature of themselves. So I think that's why I resonated so much with what you were saying then, because I think something that I refuse to do is to become a caricature of myself. The work that I do, and I feel this in your work as well, it actually does require silence. It requires observation. It requires you to sit in solitude. It requires you to test out your ideas in your own mind first before putting them out. Um, so I, I, yeah, that's just something that I really appreciated. And I wanted to just hear your perspective again on that, because it's, it's just so refreshing. It really is. 
I mean, I like to use the word solitude because mm -hmm. my best work is done that way. I think all creators' best work is done that way. So much so that I actually have solitude tattooed across my fingers. Um, it, it's, it's a very positive place to be as a creator because if you don't identify with your work first and foremost, you can't expect other people to as well. Mm -hmm. And I like what you said about being a caricature because I essentially became that um, with this whole captain persona. Uh, I, I kind of started getting some notoriety and publishing books in about 2015. And by 2019, I had gained so much recognition as the captain. I started to kind of forget who I was as Kyle. And mm -hmm. I would go, I would be out in public and more people knew me as the captain than knew me as Kyle. And I started kind of falling into that crisis of identity particularly when I wanted to change some things about my life and I wanted to, you know, pursue a relationship and I wanted to perhaps depart from the style of writing I had been doing and write stuff that was more vulnerable and more meaningful. I found that very hard at first because I'd become this caricature and I had used the captain to essentially test the waters with some of my work. I would write stuff that was very vulnerable or meaningful and if it wasn't received or if it got, you know, an embarrassing, you know, comment, it was easier for me to kind of separate from it and say, oh, that wasn't me. That was the captain. So I used him kind of like a veil to reveal myself without doing it. And it wasn't until 2019 that I fell into a real deep depressive spell. Um, and my girlfriend and I broke up and I had to take some time off social media. I, I actually got off all media. I didn't allow myself to even watch TV um, for a period of about a month, month and a half, I did nothing but read books. And I started doing therapy, stuff that I was very against at the time. But in doing so, I had to go back and rediscover myself. So when I returned to social media, that was when I added my name Kyle Creek to my profile. Um, mm -hmm. Prior to that, no one could really find who I was. They could only find me as the captain, um, which I, I took a lot of pride in. I thought it was, you know, me executing very good branding strategy the fact that i've been able to hide who i was mm -hmm. and it's what i started recently talking about too is i was self-suppressing who i really was for so long i believe that was the major cause of my depression right. and that's that's one of the things i've said lately is self-suppression is a recipe for depression and yeah. particularly as a creative because your work is supposed to be your way to express yourself and if you're not expressing yourself through your work you are going to find yourself in a, a deep hellhole at some point. Mm, and you know what? I wrote those words when I heard you speak them, when I was listening to a conversation you had. When I heard that self-suppression is a recipe for depression, and I wrote it down this fucking morning, um, it made me think about so many different things. You were speaking about it in the context of, you know, the persona that you created as a means of self-protection, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but it you were also getting rewarded quite highly for that persona. And it made me think about so many things that are happening in our culture right now, which you talk about as well. Both of us do. How you create this, we create these identities, right? Especially now more than ever when we are in a culture that's obsessed with identity. There's a serious and quite disturbing obsession with identity. So you have people creating these identities, even in victimhood, that seems to be sort of... Mm -hmm. And, and then they get rewarded for these identities. So even if they move out of that place where they 
don't even actually feel like a victim anymore or they haven't been victimized they've found that to actually get the um affirmation and validation whether it's self affirmation and self validation or external that i need i have to hold on to this persona that i've created um because i'm constantly thinking about how much we're collectively in a identity crisis so when i heard you say that self suppression is a recipe for depression um and talking about creating a persona as a means of self protection so many fucking light bulbs just went off in my head and i couldn't wait to talk to you about that um because i do see that it's something you speak of and i i find it quite interesting that it, you've also experienced a similar thing i mean i i think the issue with social media is it reaffirms bad behavior um one not everyone wants to feel like they're the only one fucking their life up. So when you mm -hmm. post that you're doing something fucking stupid, a lot of people will applaud you because it makes them feel like they're not alone. But also along the lines of what you're saying with victimhood, when you post something talking about how, you know, you've been the victim of, you know, a, a variety of things and you get a lot of attention for it, you get a lot of people that like it and you get a lot of people that comment on it, that response reaffirms to you that that is the right mindset um particularly when you are trying to feed this machine and you base everything on how many likes it gets how many shares it gets how many comments it gets which a lot of people unfortunately do whether you're a creator or not we take the likes as our, our validity in life when we have something that's liked a lot we feel valid and so when you post a a very you know victimhood post and it's validated by a thousand people it encourages you to keep doing it and it's that self-perpetuating machine that is causing so much people this identity crisis right now and like you said the obsession with identity largely comes from no one wants to feel alone no one wants to feel completely misunderstood and it's very easy to latch onto a cause and it's very easy to latch onto a frame of mind and have you know a dozen people quickly support it that makes you feel like now you're part of a group and you know i i of all people know probably more than most what it's like to to try and feed you know a false persona mm. the captain wasn't the captain was never not me yeah. it was just the parts of me i wanted people to see so i used it to hide the stuff that i felt was too too uh you know too vulnerable or the stuff that i felt was too revealing essentially i was like a magician you know i would perform my magic trick which was my writing but i would conceal what allowed me to to create that magic trick so i wouldn't tell the story i wouldn't tell the stories behind how i learned some of these hard lessons or i wouldn't talk about what really happened in my life that week that made me think or or write that certain phrase and now i found the more i talk about the back story to my work not only does it make me feel a lot less weight on my shoulders but it actually has made my work better because i'm no longer writing for the the audience as much as i'm just writing for myself and i've been doing that pretty heavily since 2019 i always did a little bit but that really shifted and anyone who's followed me for more than 4 or 5 years can note that definite shift in my work and then going into you know 2020 and all the shit that happened there that was when i really decided i needed to step up and mm -hmm. my whole 
career is predicated on me expressing my opinion and sharing what I think. And if I didn't do it in 2020, I would have been the biggest hypocrite and I would have absolutely just regretted myself. And I probably would have been, I would have viewed myself as a total fraud. And I know that would have just caused me immense pain and depression. So for me, it was a lot easier to decide, to decide just to speak out than it was to have to deal with confronting myself uh, mm -hmm. a year later and know that I just kind of sat back and didn't say anything. Yeah. And what I'm, I'm getting chills as you're speaking because isn't it crazy to think that 2020 was two years ago, but at the almost same three, time, <laughs> almost fucking three years ago. Yeah. It feels but at the same time, it feels like it wasn't that long ago. But I, I feel like a lot of people are sort of breaking out of this trance and realizing just how fucked up, sinister and disturbing a lot of things that happened were. And I'm, mm. I'm curious to know just for myself, would you say that there was anything specific that happened for you that year that made you say, no, actually, I am going to speak up in this specific way? Was there a specific thing? Was it a collection of incidents? Was it, what was it for you? It was likely a collection, but it was also my background. Um, the fact that I had worked in advertising, I know the power of the written word. I know how to write headlines and I know how to create press around an idea or an event. And seeing what was going on in like March and April, I was able to quickly identify the strategy that was being put behind it because I had never done it, you know, as you know, political sense like that, but I had done it to sell products and, yes. you know, uh, destinations and stuff. So it's a very similar strategy. And I was watching that, but also I was living in LA at the time and just seeing how quickly everyone kind of fell in line there really bothered me because I grew up in Utah. I grew up as a mountain boy most of my life. I grew up with, you know, horses and chickens and kind of a country lifestyle. And in that scenario, you know, you always kind of, you idolize the cowboys and the freedom and the wild west is kind of the mindset I grew up with. And so when I did live in New York city, when I lived in LA, I would often comment on people. It just feels wrong to not have my boots touch anything other than concrete for a month at a time. And so in LA, when seeing everyone just kind of jump in line with shutting things down, um, it was disturbing. And I had just gotten a puppy a couple months prior, and my girlfriend and I and our dog, we were walking him at a junior high school up the street from my condo, and we were the only ones there. This was probably or maybe early April. It was when everything in LA was shut down, and an LAPD helicopter swooped over us and it circled back and it lowered down to maybe 100, 150 feet and just kind of sat above us. And my girlfriend and I were telling each other, we're like, these motherfuckers are trying to intimidate us. Like they want us to go back inside. And that was when we decided we needed to get out of California. We're like, this is going to get worse. We need to leave. And even the grocery store by my house had a police dog at the front door and when you went to go buy groceries during that time, the police dog would was there to kind of enforce everyone going in one at a time. So it, it was that kind of stuff that was alarming. But from a mental sense, just kind of seeing how quickly everyone eroded into a state of fear and knowing the power of the written word, I 
saw an opportunity for me to be a voice of the opposite, you know, mind frame. And I've had a lot of people over the years comment to me, you know, why haven't you chosen a side? Why haven't you chosen a side? Because one, le one week I'll write something that has a lot of liberal people after, after me. And the next week I might write something that has conservative people after me. And <laughs> yeah, it's a compliment. It means you're independent. It means they can't put you in a box. And so when someone asked me why I haven't chosen sides, I said, listen, I chose sides a long time ago. I chose the side of the people. Yes. The side I chose was individuals. The side I chose was bringing us together. And so from the get-go, I was very outspoken about questioning what you were seeing and trying to not turn you against your neighbor and understanding that if you don't use critical thinking at this time, it's going to get worse. Mm. Um, but I had a book that was set to release in August of 2020, and it was my first big publishing deal. And... I still at the time was very nervous that I was going to lose that contract. I was, I could very, it was easy for me to see where my publisher stood um, as a lot of large media companies did during the time. And I was paranoid that they would pull my book deal because I needed that money. Mm. But I eventually got to a place where I told my girlfriend, I said, listen, if I lose my book deal because I want to speak out, I'm willing to do that at this point. I will feel better with myself knowing that I said what I wanted to say than I will feel having this book come out. Mm -hmm. So I just, I went for it. That's when I started really kind of digging in and attacking politicians with the same kind of fire they were throwing at us. And that's when I started really kind of calling out what I was seeing wrong as far as the manipulation and trying to suppress everyone and people, just, you know, you couldn't even question anything without being labeled. Right. And I thought for sure my publisher was going to drop me, and they didn't. I never heard anything from them about it. I think, if anything, they probably silently were uh, applauding me and cheering me on because I was saying the stuff they wish they could say. Yes. And I can look back in the last two years, and I'm very proud of myself, and I'm proud of the work I've put out because I never once wrote anything to divide people, mm -hmm. and I never once tried to turn anyone against their neighbor or to turn anyone into a monster i the whole time feel comfortable with what i said because i said what i truly believed and a lot of what i believe and what people believe is very gray this whole black and white divide everything is just complete and utter bullshit life is gray life is complex we need to have grace and empathy for each other and when we lose that, we lose what makes a society operate. And that's the ability to, to disagree, but still get along. Yeah, right. And you know, uh, I wrote down, if you see me looking down and just writing some notes, because a lot of what you're saying just, it, it doesn't just resonate with me, but I, I, I know that it resonates with a lot of people because the fear that was instilled in people, especially in 2020, is something that most will never recover from. And mm. I, I think that's the, that's one of the main things that infuriates me the most because I get to see the effects of this in the work that I do in the real world. When I log out of Instagram, when I, when I log out of anything that is digital, the clients that I work with, the people that I have conversations with, the emails that I get every single fucking day 
of the relationships that were fractured because of everything that happened, the amount of people that committed suicide because of everything that happened and the fear that was instilled in people. It's a very, very serious thing. And I think one of the most bizarre things which my friend Zubi speaks about so well is the fact that a lot of people are the cognitive dissonance is so strong. A lot of people know that something very wrong happened in the past couple of years, just in terms of the relational breakdown, the divide that we've been seeing, the positions that people were forced to take, um, the relationships that people were pretty much coerced into ending. Mm -hmm. A lot of people know that a lot of damage was caused, but it's almost like we're supposed to just forget we're supposed to kind of just forget about it and pretend that nothing has happened. There's this, um, what I like to think of as, as collective denial. We're being made to kind of deny, you know, nothing to see here, nothing happened, you know. Um, so I, I think the reason why I really appreciate people like you is because you came at a time and you were really speaking at a time when there was a huge cost for speaking. I've seen that in the past year, there are now many more people that are starting to feel like, okay, I can say something, I can speak about it. But a couple of years ago, even a year ago, even the conversation that you and I are having right now would have been fucking terrifying to have. I still would have had it, but there was a real cost and there still is. Um, because yeah, something, something deeply psychologically disturbing happened in the past couple of years and i think we we still have no idea we haven't even scratched the surface in terms of trying to understand what has happened to people um but something that you were saying as well earlier which i'd love to just uh, sort of explore with you a little bit more is this pressure to pick a side and i write about this so much in my work and i'll never fucking stop until everyone gets sick of it but even when you think of just the absurd idea that millions of people only have two options. You're either on the right or you're either on the left. When you really think about how, I, I, I mean, you kind of have to laugh. It's the most absurd thing that you have to be firmly on the left or you have to be firmly on the right that you couldn't possibly, depending on the context, depending on the situation, depending on the policy, you couldn't possibly be in the middle. Right. And I think there's a there's a deep hatred for people that say, actually, I refuse to pick a side or I agree with that on the right. But I also agree with that on the left. Actually, I don't even I don't even understand the concept of the left or right. Um, mm. And I'm always curious as to what that is. Is it a do you think it's just an innately human thing where we need to place people into categories so we can feel safer. Because I don't think it's anything new. I, I think it's something that's sort of um, evolutionary where we need to make sense of everything in order to feel safer. So when someone dances in the gray, when someone refuses to pick a side, it can almost kind of bring up a sense of distrust. What, what do you think it is as to why people have an aversion for the middle? There's, there's a lot to chew on there. Um, I think it's fear. I think people are afraid of what they can't predict because life is so unpredictable. And if they can label you as right or left on a certain issue, they like to believe they can predict how you think on every other issue. And life feels more manageable when it's predictable. And so when you're someone that can't be boxed in, people have a fear of you because they don't 
see you as someone they can easily control or they they might even fear themselves because they see what you're doing and it makes them afraid to admit who they really are. And I think that's the issue with everyone kind of denying what happened the past two years. I think a lot of people are uncomfortable facing the fact that when crisis hit, they became a monster. Mm -hmm. um, pe people, people don't want to admit that they essentially failed the litmus test of being a good person. Um, they don't want to admit that they opted for fear and hatred and violence instead of compassion and empathy and grace. And it's, it's a hard thing to come to terms with. And I can understand if you were one of those individuals, it would, you'd feel a lot of guilt and shame for how you acted. And yes. I talked about this recently on a podcast. I will never forget some of the late night monologues that I saw some TV hosts deliver. I will never forget some of the stuff I saw celebrities say, and I'll never forget some of the stuff even old friends of mine said. Um, I'm all for forgiveness and allowing people to learn from their mistakes, but I don't want to be surrounded by people that can be flipped so easily. I don't want to be surrounded by people that are so easily turned against their fellow human. Um, and so I, I will never support those individuals again. Some of those friendships will never return. I had a friend verbatim who tweeted, I hope all the unvaccinated just die already so my family can get back to my life. And I remember thinking, wow, that is so hateful and that is so fucking wrong. Um, I hope you work through whatever that is, but I will never be friends with you again. And it's not, it's not to say that, you know, if you chose to get it or not, you're a bad person. I understand a lot of people were, I understand a lot of people were forced into it. My own family was, um, my own brother's a doc, my brother's a doctor and my brother was very adamant in trying to convince me to get it. And I understand why he, he wanted to out of a place of love. He wanted to have a place of helping um, the fact that I chose not to is my own choice, and I don't fault him for trying to convince me to do it. I think a lot of people were were misled into believing certain things. Um, and it's that kind of grace and empathy. It's like I've said before. I mean, I can, I can completely disagree with something someone says, and it doesn't mean I hate that person. Mm -hmm. And I can completely dislike someone and still agree with something they said. It's being able to separate um, you know, the, the opinion from the human that a lot of people have lost track of. And kind of like you said, if you don't identify as right or left, it's also if you're not aggressively against that other side now. Yes. It's like now, it's like now if you're not aggressively against a certain, op a certain opponent, now you're a bad person. You have to speak out. That, that whole silence is violence bullshit. Um, yeah. Where if, you, if you're not speaking out, you're complicit. Like, I understand the rationale behind that, but that is the biggest crock of bullshit when it comes to um, approaching sensitive, complex topics. A lot of topics mm -hmm. are too complex to be put in that kind of box. And I don't even remember what question you asked me. I kind of just tailed off, but hopefully I answered it. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is good. This is good. We were, I'll, I'll just, also piggyback from what you were saying i mean there's so much so much you've just put forward that i just want to open the door to everything but when you were talking about how a lot of people 
it's very uncomfortable to face the way that you behaved. It's really mm -hmm. fucking uncomfortable. And it reminds me of something that I was actually just writing the other day, was that we create a truth that makes it comfortable to live with. You know, we, we, we create our own versions of what happened. A lot of people think what happened was not wrong, that it was justified. A lot of people were mm -hmm. angry. A lot of people acted exactly as they needed to. A lot of people, you know, set up boundaries with family members. You can position anything in how you like, right? In terms of the treatment, someone else could, we could call it dehumanization. Someone else can call it boundaries. We all create some kind of truth that makes it more comfortable for us to live with what we have done or participated mm -hmm. in. Um, so I think that's why when people like you and I and many other people come forward and, you know, hold a mirror up, not only to ourselves, but to other people, it's very confronting. And I think it takes a certain level um, of self-awareness. And I don't, I don't say what I'm about to say in an egoic or self-righteous way, but it does take a certain level of self-awareness um, and, a, and a willingness to really stand in your intellectual humility to say, actually, I had it so fucking wrong. I had it so wrong. I behaved in a way that I myself did not even expect, you know. Um, most people will not choose that part. Most people will double the fuck down. And that's it's, what we see all the time, <laughs> right? It's, it's one of the most courageous things you can do as a person is admit fault. Yeah. And I heard a quote recently, I actually shared this in my newsletter on Monday, um, by, a, by a woman by the name of Kathleen Schultz. And it said, our love of being right is best understood as our fear of being wrong. And I thought that quote was so profound just in general, but particularly with what we're talking about now in the past couple of years, it's the fear of being wrong, the fear of being on the wrong side, the fear of being labeled all sorts of the shit that's thrown around online these days that keeps people from really being themselves. And the, hard, the hardest thing you will ever do in life is be yourself. And I, I believe that without a doubt. The hardest thing you're ever going to have to do in life is be yourself. Because at times, you're going to upset people. At times, you're going to disagree. At times, you're going to go through a lot of turmoil and pain because you know you have to do something that's right for you. And our society has been so geared towards comfort and has been so geared towards appealing to everyone and has been so geared towards being liked the fact that everything we post online is judged by likes um we just drifted so far away from the raw vulnerability or just courage it requires to be yourself in all situations it's it's very difficult i struggle with it still i'm mm -hmm. sure you do everyone does it's never something that you truly just you 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 do without second thought. It's something that requires practice. And as you build that level of integrity, it makes certain decisions easier and easier. Yeah, I, I do agree. I do agree. And I think, do you think you still experience self-censorship in any way where you withhold what it is that you actually think and feel or, yeah, do you find you still experience that today? <laughs> Uh, I experience it in the sense that I like really crude humor. Um, I experience <laughs> it in the sense, yeah, I, I experience it in the sense that I sometimes have to kind of tone my language down. 
But yeah. as far as expressing what I mean or desire or truly think about a point, I don't experience it at all anymore, really, because um, like you said, we've kind of already been through the crucible of the scariest time to say what we were saying. And once you've, once you've gone through that, I don't worry too much about what can happen. I mean, the scariest thing for me at the time of losing my book deal and that didn't happen. And now I'm more independent in my career. I'm not mm -hmm. as dependent upon, I'm not as dependent upon publishers or other offers as I was. And I feel I'm in a very stable place to be able to take the risks I want to take, but also now that I'm a new father, um, my son's about 15 months old, mm -hmm. I, it has simplified my choices because it makes things easier for me to decide if I think for, through the eyes of if my son was 17, 18 and was old enough to realize what I'm doing, would he be ashamed to call me his dad? Would he be embarrassed that I made, would he be embarrassed I acted this way? And so it's helped me develop just that integrity and character that has it's honestly made life so much easier. And we're always told in the media and society that having kids makes life harder. Well, there's certain instances where you have to work around things, but as far as life itself, being a father has streamlined my life. That's incredible. Did you ever think that it would, or is it a surprise to you that it has? It's a surprise to me. I was scared to death of becoming a dad. I mean, I think a lot of men are, I wasn't ready. And I was paranoid about how it was going to affect my autonomy or my freedom. Uh, like many creatives, I was afraid it was going to hurt my creativity. Um, a lot of my my work was derived from a rather, you know, ludicrous or ridiculous lifestyle. Um, I used mm -hmm. to drink quite heavily. I used to go out and party quite often. And I felt that my best work came from putting myself in wild or precarious situations and I worry that if my life slowed down a bit and I was home more and doing what I had to do to be a dad I would lose that edge to my work and all I've found is that my creativity is more in my control than ever I realize that all I think a lot of creatives attach falsely to substance abuse and um, having to live a, a painful life in order to have work to draw from and right. my belief is that it's because pain and revenge are a very easy emotion to go to and anger is a very easy emotion to go to and so it's it's easy to pull creativity from those emotions because they're so surface and they burn so hot but i found that if you can it, you, all creativity just comes from being able to tap into your emotions in general it's yeah. just the fact it's just the fact the easiest ones to go to are anger and revenge and hate and so if you can learn to go to other emotions with just as much of a white hot flame you're going to have that creativity and i think writing for me now is easier the mm. book i'm working on the book i'm working on now is probably my best work i've ever done and um it's it's, it's been a completely different writing routine for me but it's it's the best work and i know that when i release it it's something i'm going to be super fucking proud of Yes, I love that. I love that. And what you just said, I think is so fucking powerful because it reminds me of something else that I've heard you say, um, which is the importance. And I think you were saying that your girlfriend actually put this mindset and idea forward to you. And I think it will be so useful for anyone listening to make sure that if you're putting out your, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is how I received it, that if you're putting forward any ideas, not and you don't have to be a creator or anything to, to identify with this, 
make sure that you're not coming from a place of just being against something. Make sure that you're actually coming from a place of being for something. And the moment that I heard you say those words, it allowed me to understand and realize why my work, even though some people label it as controversial, and I think this could be the, the same could be said for yours, even though some people label it as controversial, and I really don't fucking think it is. I think it's just the time that we're in right now. Anything that veers from the norm is controversial. It's really not. Um, I think the reason is because I'm not just for against something. I'm mm -hmm. sure that when I put out my open letter <clears throat> two, nearly three years ago, why I'm leaving the cult of wokeness, I made sure that I was not going to spend the rest of my journey and my time and my life talking about being anti-woke. I couldn't give a fuck if you're woke or anti-woke. There's a deeper problem that I'm trying to address in the work that I'm doing. So I realized that the reason that it's resonating with a lot of people is because I'm speaking to what I'm for. I'm not just banging on about mm -hmm. what I'm against. I'm for, I'm for open conversation. And it doesn't mean that we have to accept everything. We get to have boundaries, but I'm for questions, right? I'm for dancing in the gray. I'm for the nuance. I'm for saying, hey, I, I don't fucking know. I don't have enough information to speak about this. I'm for having the tough conversations. So the moment that I heard you say those words, um, it felt like such a validation to something that I've already been doing. And I think something that can be so useful to anyone that is thinking about expressing themselves in a more courageous way, leaning to the parts of them that are more assertive and more grounded, even when what you have to say goes against the grain. And even if it's slightly controversial, when you come from that position of being for something and not just being against something, I think you tap into yeah, you tap into something so special. So I, I, yeah, I appreciated when you said that. I, I, I fucking loved it. I loved it. It was very much my girlfriend. She likes to repeat yeah. that often to remind me. Um, so much more power comes from positivity. And that's why it's so controversial, because it's so strong. Um, some of the work that I get the most blowback or retaliation on is work that is meant to be self-empowering when i write <laughs> when i write stuff to empower people i get a lot of angry comments and i believe and this is probably what you deal with too i believe the reason is when you empower someone in order for them to step into that power and accept responsibility it requires them to look back on their past and acknowledge all that they have either done wrong or all they missed out on. And it's very uncomfortable for people to accept the fact they are in control of a lot of the stuff in their life. Mm. And so when you write an empowering message, it forces people to grapple with that feeling. And a lot of people just turn towards anger and they want to disagree with you because they don't want to hear that they are capable of it. And that's also why I believe victimhood culture is so strong in our society right now it's easier to be a victim than it is to be a victor. And so a lot of people will choose that victimhood mentality because they don't want to accept the pain and the work and the grief that comes with the regret of not having done something sooner, or they don't want to have the level of responsibility that is required to really take control of your life. Like people, like I said, people want to be comfortable and it's not comfortable to, 
have complete autonomy and it's not comfortable to be completely independent. It's extremely fucking rewarding. That's for sure. But at times it's very uncomfortable. And that's why I think your work receives criticism. And it's why I think my work along those lines receives criticism. It forces people to, to look at their shadows and they don't want to do that. Right. Right. And you know, um, there's something that you wrote actually in your book. Oh God, I hope, I hope it's good. <laughs> it's really fucking good. It's good. Um, you wrote this in the chapter in your book, Speech Therapy, which I've just been highlighting all day, but it was in the chapter online arguments and, and accusations. <laughs> and it reads like this. <sighs> so good. Okay. Um, most people are too afraid to speak their mind, even if they believe it to be true, because they're overly concerned with how people will react to it, what they'll be called, or how their words will be misconstrued. At times, even I find myself questioning what I say online or write in this book because of how my words might be appropriated or taken out of context. However, I would rather live with the risk of being misinterpreted than the certainty of knowing that I was too afraid to say something. I'll go down with my ship if that's where my opinions and observations take me. I love that. Kyle. Damn, I wrote that? That was fucking good. You fucking wrote that, Kyle. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> tell me. Okay, tell, tell me. I'm sure a lot of things come up, but I, yeah, I just, I, we kind of alluded to this when we were speaking about where you might still self-censor, but I'm just curious to know what for you this means, even when you look at it, maybe a year or two on from when you actually wrote these words, what, what does this mean for you and what does it look like and what kind of declaration are you making when you write something like this? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I wrote that a year ago and mm. I still agree with all of it. Um, for me, what that means was particularly when I say I'd rather have the risk of being misconstrued than the certainty of knowing that I was too afraid to do something. It's yeah. kind of what I said earlier when it would be harder for me to look back on the last two years and realize I hadn't spoke out than it has been for me to take, you know, the flack that comes from speaking out from time to time. Right. Um, a lot of people have this idea that when something goes wrong online, it's going to ruin their life. And it might be in the same chapter where I talk about the fact that you give anything three days and it'll go away. You give anything a week and people will completely forget it. And dealing with a very temporary um, response or reaction to something you wrote, as opposed to looking back on years of your life and knowing that you wasted them trying to appease other people, that temporary reaction is so much easier to deal with. Even if it happens time and time again, um, there have been times when people have tried to rally, you know, some cancel around me or whatever you want to call it. And mm -hmm. it never lasts more than three days because I don't feed it for one. And I don't stop what I'm doing. I keep doing what I'm doing. I'm a firm believer in the fact that you have to allow yourself to be canceled. You have to kind of, um, you have to essentially just kind of allow yourself to drown and stop paddling. And if you keep paddling, or if it's something you genuinely 
feel bad about. You should apologize, but you should never apologize to appease someone. If you, well, as soon as you do that, you've muddied the waters and now everything you do or your own personal thoughts are going to just be kind of vague and you're not going to feel, you know, you're not going to feel like you're acting in your authentic self because you've already shown that you're willing to sacrifice your beliefs for the sake of others. And so when I talk about that in the book, what it means for me is it's much easier to deal with the temporary reaction than like, than look back on your life and feel as though you, you wasted it. And Mm -hmm. as a writer, my best work comes from being honest. My best work is often confrontational. And I think we talked about this a bit, a bit before we got on this call. I believe everyone's life should be confrontational. I think if you live a completely confrontationless life, or if you live a life that has no conflict, I don't think that's much of a life at all. Um, we need confrontation because it's a re reaffirms that we are acting in our truth and being independent. And it's not to say you should go looking to pick fights. You should go trying to disagree, but there should be times in your life when you disagree, there should be times in your life to have some conflict. And I always get kind of weirded out by people who write me and say, Oh God, man, I agree with everything you say. And I think, do you really like, I hope you don't agree with everything I say, because these are, these are my opinions. These are my beliefs and I appreciate the support, but you should absolutely disagree with something once in a while. If you don't, I, I worry that you're not really in receiving my words the way they should be received. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause a lot of my words actually would encourage you to disagree with me from time to time. And mm-hmm. I would hope that people can, can see the benefit in doing so. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. I feel, I feel like I just need to soak that in for a second because I can, I can picture, you know, you know how you were saying earlier that some people get so fucking angry when you put out a message that empowers them or a message that actually gives them a solution because now they have to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, I can just picture the moment that you were saying you have to allow yourself to be cancelled. You have to give it time. You have to not say anything. You have to stand firmly in your spine and in who you are in that moment when the flames are burning around you. Those are the moments because of that, just this really, just this really saddening culture that we're in. That's where people will weaponize identity against you. So what I mean by that is something along the lines of, well, it's easy for you to say because you are someone that is in the public eye. It's it's easy for you to say because, Kyle, you are a cis, hetero, white man. So, of course, you're going to tell us that we just have to, you know, just withstand all of this that's happening around us. And I think that speaks so loudly to just, as I said, where we are right now. But I know, not just from my own personal experience, but from the hundreds and thousands of people that I have worked with, that what you are saying here is so fucking true. A lot of what we believe is the be-all and end-all to what happens online is not actually a true reflection of your reality. So I think a lot of us need to be willing to stand in that discomfort of getting some kind of pushback when you say something. And I I always like to make something clear when I say this, that the level of risk one is willing to take is always going to look so different. 
the level of mm. risk that Kyle is willing to take and Africa is willing to take and someone else and Zafaya or Jazz, whoever else is going to look so different. So I think, not even I think, I know that when people are pushing back to a message where they are being told that actually you, you are an autonomous human being, you're an adult who gets to decide how they're going to move forward. I think they assume that you're telling them that the way that you would respond is the way that they need to, that your level of mm -hmm. risk has to be their level of risk. But everyone can meet themselves where they are. It can even exactly. start. It, I, that's why I always encourage people as well. In everything we're saying right now, don't make public sharing a priority. Do not make digital sharing a priority. You have to practice this way of being, being more assertive, allowing yourself to hear yourself, be in conflict in a healthy way. You have to practice this in your interpersonal relationships, your friendship group, your lover, your family, maybe a colleague that you're able to kind of go back and forth with in a different way without causing so much pain or destruction around you. But I think because we, we lean so much into the binary thinking, oh, well, Kyle, it's easy for you to say this. Well, Africa, it's easy for you to say this without thinking, okay, I can, I can actually take something from this and apply it in a very small way in my everyday life and then just see what happens. Um, so I, I like that you say these things in a very convicted way and you don't apologize for it because I think it puts the onus on the individual to take a piece of what it is they need and actually integrate it into their life. Um, well, a lot of that is me just leading by example. I mean, yes. me standing, me standing very firm in my beliefs and writing what I write is essentially giving others a hall pass to do the same. Mm -hmm. um, and I like what you say about the small groups. You have to practice this in your interpersonal groups because yeah. I think a lot of people they see individuals like you and I who are essentially in the public eye, we share things on a very massive scale. And I'm willing to talk about uncomfortable subjects with a very large audience, but it doesn't mean you should do it too. Because until you're in a place where you understand that a lot of the feedback or a lot of the response you're going to get on online is fairly invalid to your life, that feedback can be detrimental to your healing or your growth. And I'm in a place where I can share that to a large audience. I can read some of the comments and they won't affect my decision in the end because I've already made up my mind. I've already decided what I'm going to do. I simply share to let people know they're not alone or to help them feel misunderstood. But you have to be in a position where you're fairly comfortable with yourself to do that and so if you're new to you know this personal growth journey or if you're currently working through your, your shadow work and all that kind of stuff and you decide to go wide and far with it and share it to everyone online all that feedback you're going to get is just going to fuck with your head and it's not going to put you in the right place and I used to when I worked in advertising one of my least favorite things to engage in was a focus group I hated focus grouping my work. And the reason why is because you'll find people in focus groups, they feel entitled and they will give you opinions they otherwise would never have. And the reason they give that opinion is because they feel like if they don't have an opinion, they've failed the focus group. Okay. They think their role, they think their role in that focus group is to have a critical opinion. 
And so everyone will come up with a critical opinion. Likewise, online, if you reach out for feedback, people feel entitled to give it, and they otherwise might not have feedback at all, but they will give it to you because they don't want to feel like they failed you, and they want to feel like they, they're, they're uh, someone that's appreciated. And it's just something that, it just hit me. It's something I hadn't really thought of before until you talked about that interpersonal um, importance. I just, I just realized that it took me being very comfortable with myself and knowing what my decisions were ahead of time before I was willing to put them out to a massive audience. Mm, yes, 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 yes. And you know what? I actually think this piece is going to offer so much relief for people because I think when conversations around critical thinking and independent thought and undoing self-censorship, I, I think they can be conversations that are very motivating. They can be conversations that make someone feel like, yes, fuck yes, something needs to change. I'm glad someone is talking about this. But then the moment you and I say bye to each other or the video stops or the podcast stops or they log out, the individual can often feel like, okay, so what, where the fuck do I, where the fuck do I begin? What am I supposed to share online? But mm. I, I don't want to share online. I don't want to create a platform. So I think something that I like to do, I always want to come from a solutions focused place. I don't just want to critique, 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 talk. It, that's useless. We need to talk about how people can actually integrate some of these things that we're saying into their everyday life. So I, I found, even with my clients, a piece that allows people's shoulders to kind of release and they feel like, oh, okay, I Africa, I get it, is when you let them know that it's public sharing does not have to be the priority. Everything mm. we're talking about now is a very slow and silent and personal process. It starts with you, the individual, because undoing self-censorship is it's nothing to do with anyone else. It's you passing through your thoughts, engaging with things that you would never normally listen to. I always advise people, um, go to someone that you've been told you should never listen to them. They're a dangerous person. They're a, maybe there's some kind of misogynist or some kind of transphobe or some kind of whatever the label. And understand that as understanding and receiving information does not mean acceptance by default. But I think one of the ways you can start to work with undoing self-censorship and stepping into yourself as an independent thinker is to take in different types of information and then decide what you think about it. Not what I'm telling you to think or what your favorite influencer or some fucking infographic is telling you what to think. And then you just work through it in your own mind and then have a conversation maybe with one person, with another person and work out those ideas. But it's a very slow and sometimes unsexy, but I think it's a beautiful and exciting process. And I think it will offer so many, so many of you listening to this relief to know that you don't, you don't have to publicly share to be an independent thinker. It, it actually is all within you. And it's a, yeah, it's a very personal thing that's often done in solitude. And then I like, I liked what you said about um, you can take in information, but it doesn't mean you accept it. And mm -hmm. I think we've also ran into a big roadblock with, with that in the past couple of years. I think this is kind of what mm -hmm. Joe Rogan dealt with when people were saying, "Oh, why are you platforming these people?" Right. He was simply trying. To, he was simply trying to take in that information or make that information more available to more people. And we have this this 
mindset in society now where if you just read an article or you just read something controversial, like you shouldn't even give that your attention. It's like, no, it's actually, it's actually how you form opinions and it's actually how you, you know, it's actually how you critically think as you look at the pros and cons and the, the for and against of both sides. And if you're not willing to explore both sides, you're never going to arrive at an informed, educated opinion. And the complete avoidance of the opposite side is the reason why we have such a divide. Right. I, I, I agree. I really do. And I, I experienced the very same thing last year when I had a conversation with Jordan Peterson. And I remember some people that I sort of knew they were really just shocked that I would sit down with this dangerous transphobe who, you know, wants the demise of all marginalized people. And how could I sit with him? I, <laughs> I, I, it was. Especially, especially as a woman, how could you do that as a woman? Especially yeah. as a woman, how fucking dare I? Yeah. You know? um, and it was just one of the examples. And I mean, that was probably maybe a handful of people, but they were so passionate and so confused and so disappointed. And I mean, the disappointment of strangers is something to be, I, I mean, really. But I, I think that was one of the biggest examples that I've had of people just not even being able to entertain the idea that I could sit with someone that I actually don't completely agree with. Someone that I do personally owe an apology because I had them so wrong in so many ways. And I could tell them to their face that I was sorry for misrepresenting them in the way that I did. did. And I can go on with my life and not have to take everything Jordan says as fact. But I also now don't feel like I have to disregard him because I've been told to. Because to be a good mm -hmm. lefty, you can't listen to Jordan. I mean, how fucking ridiculous is that? Um, so I get it. <laughs> it's such, it's such a, it's such a constricted view of the world. Um, it's a lot of people are essentially putting blinders on themselves, like a horse running down a track and they don't want to look at anything outside of the lines they're running in. And you just miss out on so much life. Yes. I mean, you're, you're, they're, they're crawling into a cave of ignorance on purpose and they're staying there rather than wanting to explore the world for what it is. I mean, if you're exploring the world, say you're a mountain climber, for example, you're going to come across a lot of stuff that you like, and you're going to come, come across a lot of stuff that's fucking scary. You know, you're going to come across like treacherous terrain, wild animals, but it doesn't mean the wilderness is all bad. It just means as you're exploring anything, you're going to come across stuff that, you know, is dangerous, or you're going to come across stuff you disagree with. Mm. But that's the point of exploring in the first place is to see what you come across. Right. And that's the point of life is to see who you meet and what you learn and who you see. Like the whole point of being here is to try and have a wide view as possible and meet and interact with as much people as you can, in my opinion. I mean, that's why we're here. Yes. I, I love that. I agree with that so much. And I, I think one of the things that I would want to know and for you to put forward before we leave each other is I think sometimes when you are speaking in the way that you and I do or looking at things retrospectively and speaking in the way that we do I find that some people can easily fall into self-righteousness when suddenly they have 
a level of self-awareness they believe that other people might not um, where they're able to look at things and be in, you know, almost disbelief that people could behave in this way and they want people to, for lack of a better term, wake up, right? How do you check yourself to make sure that you're not leading with your own ego because you are someone that is in the public, you are someone that gets a lot of affirmation? I think even you and I can end up easily falling into echo chambers because a lot of the people that will follow us are people that agree with us. So they will end up stroking our ego in some kind of way, right? What, what are, what's your sort of personal practice? And I think this will be useful for anyone listening to make sure that you're not leading with self-righteousness, that you're still allowing yourself to practice intellectual humility and not allowing your ego to lead. How do you, how do, you do that? First of all, I... I actively remind myself there was a time in my life that I didn't know whatever I know now. That could be something as simple as uh, an interesting fact or a way of handling my emotions. There was a time in my life where I didn't know that. All of it had to be learned. Some of it I learned early on, some of it I'm still learning now. And by reminding myself of that, I can look at anyone mm -hmm. and think, okay, there was a time where I didn't know what they need to learn. Or there was a time when I didn't know what they are currently going through. And there's likely things they know now that I don't know. Yeah. There's something you can learn from everybody. I don't care who it is. It could be a random stranger at a Walmart or it could be a speaker on you know, the stage at an event. There is something they know about life that you don't know. And it's remaining curious in that sense, but also I follow accounts I disagree with on purpose. Yeah. I, I follow accounts on Instagram and Twitter and I read news articles that I disagree with because I like to be informed. And it used to be that I did it solely so I could have material to talk shit on when I wanted to write like a funny <laughs> joke. Um, it's, it's something I've always done, just kind of kind of gave me stuff to tweet about. Um, but I, I still do it to this day because I like seeing what other people are thinking and saying. And it helps me arrive at my own conclusions helps me have a little bit of grace. It, like I said, it helps me sometimes think of really good things to write. Yes. But I would say the main thing is just remaining curious and at the same time remaining humble. Like you have to understand knowledge is one of those things that you will never acquire all of. You will always be something left to learn and everyone has something to teach you that you don't know. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I love how... Um, again, very practical and useful that is in terms of people taking some of these things and actually practicing them and integrating them. And something that I always try to do is I am very specific with the language that I will use because as someone that is committed to not fueling the division, I mm -hmm. realize just how easy it can be to end up falling into divisive language. So as I was saying before around the term you know, woke and anti-woke, even though my open letter was called what it was, and I still think the title was really fucking brilliant and accurate to what I was saying, you will never hear me refer to people as the woke. You will, mm -hmm. that, that language has never sat right with me. And the reason for that is because immediately by using that language, I'm falling into the 
yeah, I'm, I'm falling into the trap of using binary language, which ends up being even more div div divisive. And it also ends up creating another echo chamber. So what I prefer to do is to just be specific about the behavior instead of grouping people into one. Because here's the thing, just because someone is speaking about the importance of being inclusive, just because someone is speaking about the importance of being intersectional about our approach, just because someone is speaking about social justice or activism does not fucking mean they're woke, all right? All of those things are useful in and of themselves. It's just about the extremes mm -hmm. of those things. So I'm always very mindful that I refuse to label everything as work because it's not. And I think it's, I think it's ridiculous when people do that. I think it's really immature. Um, and I think it actually takes, it actually removes credibility from what some people are saying because I think some people have very brilliant things to say, but they end up falling into the culture war game. So for me, it's about the language that I use. I prefer as someone who's a mentor, as someone that studies psychology, I prefer to talk about the behavior, even though I'll do it in a very direct and firm way, and I will not mince my words, I just won't fall into the trap of grouping people without understanding the context and without understanding that actually the, what they're saying is very useful. Um, so I think language is, is another huge piece, actually, that we could all, all of us, work on a little bit more. I like that you used woke as an example because I mm -hmm. tweeted something maybe six months ago and it got quite a bit of attention and I used the word woke in it and I read it back the next day and I regretted it and I have felt bothered by it ever since because like you said, I feel like I lumped people into a group and I also kind of, I took the bait of a culture war topic and mm -hmm. It's a tweet that I've looked back on and been like, man, I should just delete this because I hate that this word is in there. Um, it's still there because I agree with all the rest of the tweet. Yes. I just hate that I, I, yeah. I hate that I chose that word and I, I, I regret it. And I believe you posted another tweet of mine where I talked about how I can hate someone, still agree with something they say. And in that caption, I expounded on the fact that I hated that. I don't like that I used the word hate. I love hate, was the wrong, hate was the wrong word. And it was something I tweeted really quickly without thinking about the word as, as a writer. That's like a big faux pas on my part. But after I wrote it, I was like, God damn it, that was the wrong word. I should not have used hate. And so there are times like that when I have done that and I've acknowledged it. And I, yeah. I like to leave them up as opposed to leave, delete them because I like that I can have a conversation around them. And it also allows me to expound on my own mistake in a way that I hope kind of almost overcorrects the mistake and brings people together as opposed to coming across as something that was that was divisive in the in the language I chose. And so I love that you brought up language as an important factor of because it is. Because a lot of people that are so against labels and are so against being boxed in are doing the exact same thing to their opposite or you know opponents if they want to call them that but they're doing it to people that disagree with them they're boxing them in they're using the same kind of language and that's the fucking issue that's where my whole you know my girlfriend's point about being for something not against something comes into play because you can be for something very strongly with an appropriate word choice or you can be against something very strongly with an appropriate word choice and so language language matters yes yes and I'm, <laughs> I'm laughing at the comments because a lot of people are, are like oh 
I use the word woke all the time. And then <laughs> someone said, as in woke lefty nut jobs. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny is my comments, the comments. <laughs> the... <laughs> See, I love stuff like that. I will still yeah. laugh at things like that. This I is what. That's what we were saying about having a sense of humor. Um, it's funny, though, because the comments froze on my screen about 10 minutes into this conversation. So I've been able to see any comments the whole time, really? which is which is nice because I'm not getting any I'm not getting any feedback loop on this conversation. Good, good. That is hilarious. People, I do want you to know that I will laugh at anything, especially the most inappropriate, absurd, dark. So I'm not above any of it, but I'm just saying as a as a professional i will choose my words carefully sometimes <laughs> um does anyone i do want to know if anyone has any questions for kyle before we leave each other about 10 minutes left so i want to know if anyone has any questions for kyle at all or even just a question from something we've said in this conversation. you'll have you'll have to read those questions read for me because i, I can't see them i'll read them out to you um, yeah, if anyone has a question, that would be great. But uh, as people are thinking, I just, yeah, this conversation has inspired me in a lot of ways. I have a feeling that you and I will need to have another part two. Um, yes. Because it was, it was just so fucking good. It really was. And especially the piece that I would love to explore with you if we have another conversation is just this idea of, and I'm reading it here because I wrote it, creating characters as a form of self-protection. I'm really curious to, to explore that more because I think it's something that's happening subconsciously for a lot of people, not just people who are in the public eye, but I think it's happening for a lot of people. But it eventually comes a time where that self-protection begins to work against you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the most fascinating piece, right? Yeah, I... I... It doesn't have to be something as extreme as what I did as far as, you know, authoring books under a pseudonym or a moniker. Mm. Nearly everyone is creating avatars of themselves, whether they realize it or not. Yes. And it's understanding that, um, particularly with, you know, social media online and what could be coming in the future with the metaverse and stuff. I think it's more important now than ever that people understand these avatars they're creating, but also the avatars others are creating. And they learn to kind of read between the lines, but also stand in their independence and the uncomfortableness of it wears off. It's, yeah. it's very comfortable. It's very comfortable to create an avatar. But like you said, at some point, it's like, it's like putting on a sweater at one point, it's very comfortable, but then it eventually gets itchy and hot and you want to take it off. Um, it's, it's very similar when you create an avatar of yourself at first, it feels great. And then after a while you find it to be fairly suffocating. And yes. I would love to, I would love to talk, uh, we could talk for an hour just on that subject alone about how, how that happened at my level, but also, you know, I'm sure what you've experienced and what others are as well. Right, exactly. And I know someone asked what the name of Kyle's book is. So it's speech therapy. And it's 52, what I would think of as just 52 unfiltered lessons to get you through life's what the fucks. Um, and it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And it's one of those books that I think you can just write so many notes on. And I like how practical and straight to the point it is. So that is speech therapy. 
Um, and if I start my book club, which I hope I do, this will <laughs> absolutely be one of the first books that we go through. Um, so I, I really like that. Kyle, I have a question for you. So, Jess said, has the concept of safety been inflated to a dangerous level when it comes to self-censorship and interacting on social media? So has the concept of safety been inflated to a dangerous level? What do you think? Yes, I would, I would agree. I, I would say it has in the sense that we are so concerned with how our words or how our actions affect others. We're essentially, you know, bubble wrapping other people to prevent them from dealing with the real us. And when you approach it, it's like, I read this study recently that talked about how kids on a playground, it's important they have a playground that has a certain level of, you know, uh, danger to it because yes. it allows them to learn how to protect themselves and it also allows them to critically think and it allows them to develop motor skills that are going to save them later in life. Mm -hmm. And it's the same way I believe in our interactions. It's, it's kind of like what I said earlier about how everything should have some confrontation or conflict at some point. If all you're having is safe conversations or if all you're worried about is the safety of others with what you say, you're going to end up suppressing yourself and you're ultimately going to miss out on learning because we learn and grow from things that are dangerous. We learn and grow from things that kind of scare us a bit. And so I would agree that it has been inflated to an, a point that's not just ridiculous, but a point that's it's backpedaling the way, the way we interact with each other. And I actually think it's become very detrimental to people expressing their opinions. I think that's where largely the self-censorship thing comes from is people are too concerned about what others might think or say, and they're not willing to kind of, you know, be a little dangerous. Yeah. Yes. And also something that I often think about is that, especially because our digital lives are becoming such a fixed part of our lives as a whole that we create these safety bubbles online. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it, right? I think you get to create your digital home. You get to decide who comes in. You get to decide who comes out. You get to set the terms of engagement. And it's important to remember that. But I think we need some kind of friction. And that friction, as you were saying before, can look like following people you don't always agree with. You need to be able to make sure that you're cultivating that skill of being able to handle healthy confrontation and conflict. So something that I often think about is that when you make your online spaces and our digital lives are becoming a huge part of this, when you make it so safe and you think any opinion that doesn't reflect yours identically is unsafe and we start to kind of cotton wool ourselves, it actually makes it very difficult to navigate the real world because when you log out and you're walking down the street, you travel, you go somewhere else, there's conflict everywhere around you. There's going to be disagreement everywhere around you. There's going to be a clash of cultures, a clash of language, a clash of worldviews. But a lot of us, especially the younger generation, we're not equipping ourselves to be able to handle that. So I think there is something to be said for understanding that your online world is, is being reflected in your everyday life as well. So how are you adding that useful friction um, so yeah, I, I, I think that's a good one. I think that's right. And just to ex expound on that a bit, I mean, yeah. integrity 
is something that's practiced. And so if you want to get to a point in your life where you don't question yourself and you feel very confident standing in your truth and you have that integrity, it comes from a lot of small steps and a lot of small examples of getting uncomfortable, having that conflict, having that friction, as you say. And if you can get comfortable with doing that online, you're more comfortable doing it in person, you'll be comfortable doing it in your relationships. And then when something very big happens, something that happens that requires you to really fall back on your character and your integrity, you're going to be able to do it because you have all those small wins. And so yeah. that's why I feel it is so important to have it in your life because you need to develop that, that skill. It's a skill that you develop over time. Yes, 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 yes. Oof. Okay, one more question and then I'll let you go, I promise. This one is from Ethan and he says, Kyle, do you have any experience reconciling with those who you became alienated from through the past couple of years? So have you reconciled with anyone you became alienated from in the past couple of years? I haven't tried to because I have not alienated myself from anyone that I knew at some point I would like in my life again. Um, it's, as I, it's as I said earlier, I'm all for forgiveness. I'm all for people learning. But if I see someone reflect a side that was all too easy for them to come to, like if I've seen someone become a monster too quickly, I take that as a sign that I need to distance myself from them in the future. And so... Mm. I've been very cognizant with who I've cut ties with. And it hasn't been many people. It honestly hasn't. It's been maybe like two or three. I am sure far more people have unfollowed me online than people I have stopped talking to in, in reality. And like I said, my own family, I disagreed with on a lot of things, a lot of my cousins, a lot of my friends, and we all still talk. Um, so I don't have experience in that because I'm not quick to cut people off to begin with. I'm not... I don't like alienating people. I like having a diverse group of friends. And I like knowing that, you know, in five, six years from now, if we cross paths again, we can kind of pick up where we left off. So mm -hmm. I, I don't have an answer for that, but perhaps it's something that you could answer. No, that's still, that's still a very, very useful answer. Um, for me, let me think, have I reconciled with anyone that I alienated? no. No. I know how I would do it. Like if I had to do it, I would approach it from a place of real humility and grace. Yes. And I would probably try and clear the air fairly quickly. If there was something that was the cause of us breaking apart, I would definitely mm -hmm. address it up front. I would get it out of the way rather than let it sit and loom over the conversation. And I would just be very willing to admit where I was wrong in the situation. Mm -hmm. And I would try and hold some grace with the other person and understand why they might have felt or done certain things. Um, yeah. It would just be a very, it would be a very quick, but a conversation filled with a lot of humility. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I like how practical that is because as we were saying, the past two years has seen a lot of relationships um, being broken because of ideology, because of fear, because of pressure to make certain decisions or to hold certain worldviews. Um, and I think a lot of people are finding themselves in that place of realizing, oh my goodness, I cut my family off. I cut mm -hmm. my partner off. I, I was receiving emails from people that were saying their partner asked for a divorce because they didn't make a certain medical decision only for their partner to realize a year later 
that everything was not as they thought and how do they mend that re- this this shit is is so it's more serious than some people might realize or might mm-hmm. not want to realize so i think a lot of people are in that place now where they're trying to mend those relationships but i think pride and ego and shame also gets in the way a lot of the time so for anyone that is having conversations like you and i i do think something that we can do or maybe take on as part of our responsibility is to give people some kind of solutions as to what they can actually do because as i was saying before i think i i think both both our messages are so powerful and a lot of people are putting out very powerful important messages but a lot of the time the how is missing and it doesn't have to be a how that says this is the only way to do it but to just allow people to realize that this is not far fetched to be able to mend those relationships to break out of echo chambers and ideologies to admit that you were wrong that you had it so fucking wrong you know it, it it can seem like it's such a mountain to climb but i think when you offered even just just a little bit of an idea of where you can start as you were saying with the conversation just leading with grace and humility um i think a lot a lot can come from it so um yeah i'm i'm really grateful that you put that forward and i'm just i'm just so grateful and very excited look at look at all my notes look at all of this <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much kyle thank you this was this was wonderful even if it was just you and i speaking in this way in private i it would have made my entire evening so thank you so much thank you i appreciate it it's like i said going into this i was excited because it felt like it was going to be a therapy session for me as well so I'm glad we had it. Um and like I said, I'll be in London next month. I think we'd be great to grab a coffee in person. I know my girlfriend would love to meet you as well. And yes. let's let's definitely do a follow-up. We need part 2. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And tell your girlfriend and your little bubba, is your little baby coming <laughs> as well? He is. He goes everywhere with me. Really? Okay, I'm going to crack out my special tea. Can you see that over there? Can you see it there? I uh, cannot tell what it is though. <laughs> okay, don't worry. I'm going to educate all of you. That's my little box with my specialty. We're going okay. to bring you this, okay? Um I cannot wait to see you and to meet you and to just speak and to exchange energy with you in person. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank you as well. I'm fucking stoked. This was a great conversation. It was. Kyle, before you go, where can people how can people connect with you because There were so many comments talking about how have I not heard this guy before thank you for having him on etc etc so where where can they find you Well right here on Instagram is a good place to start um mm-hmm. uh I'm pretty good at checking my DMs but if they just search you know the captain of Cow Creek it should come up my books are available on Amazon yes. and probably like I said I think the best place to get a hold of me would probably be Instagram I check that fairly often I'm not too active on checking messages on Twitter or Facebook mm-hmm. but I like to try and be there for people on Instagram as much as I can. Amazing. And I'd I'd love to direct everyone actually to um the most recent conversation that you had with Aubrey Marcus which I mm. have just inhaled. I listened to it twice because it was just so wonderful and the opening where you were both speaking about pets and the importance of cats. Yeah. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful conversation. Um so everyone can listen to that. This will be on my podcast. Maybe someone's listening to this on my podcast right now, but I will continue to share your work everywhere to scream about you, to share your books as much as I can. 
Um, and I look forward to having a part two and to being with you in person as well very soon. Thank you very much. I appreciate the support. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Stay in touch. Continue the conversation. And we will see you very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye.